move this Bible out of my way for a second. Don't worry, I'm still going to use the Bible. <laughs> Just brought my own. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you um, from Columbia. So it's greetings and it's, uh, it's an honor to open the Word of God with you this morning. Um, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read that for us and then I'm going to pray. And then we'll look at it together. So starting in verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little farther from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Let's pray. Lord, again, we look to you to speak to us through your word, by your spirit. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that are receptive and quick to respond in obedience and faithfulness. And also great rejoicing for what this tells us about you. So we pray your blessing on this time now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, here's a question to consider. What does it really mean to follow Christ? That sounds very, very basic. And I can't think of any other questions really when it comes to the Christian life that are more important than that. What does it really mean to follow Christ? This gets at the heart of what it means to actually be a Christian and be a disciple of Christ. However, we often struggle to consciously consider this important question. We sort of take it for granted, perhaps. And we don't consider it intentionally. And as a result, our attention is taken up with other things. Things that life constantly throws at us. Things, you know like work and career, our future, planning for our future, our family. You have children, kids' activities and their futures and all of that. Maybe it's worldly comforts, our hobbies, our entertainment, our retirement, money that we'll need for that retirement, 
whatever the case may be, too often Jesus is relegated to the margins of our lives. Other things take center stage. And he goes off to the side. He's there, but he's off to the side. And Jesus can almost become like background music to your life. Have you ever been in a grocery store and they're playing some kind of music? You hear something or you're in a department store trying on clothes and you hear some faint music playing in the background. You couldn't really put your finger on what it is or what they're saying, but it's there in the background. In a similar way, following Christ can become something we say is important, we say is central, but it's something that we merely identify with rather than intentionally pursuing or focusing on. In our text this morning, we see Jesus early on in his ministry preaching the good news of the kingdom to a crowd gathered by the sea. And he's about to call his first disciples to follow him. And in doing so, he provides a basic blueprint of sorts for what it means to follow him. And this morning, I want to highlight five things from this passage. We spend most time probably on the first two, so don't get nervous when we're well into the sermon and we've only covered two. We'll, we'll get to them all. But I want to highlight five things that speak to following Christ. Now, the scriptures mention many more things involved in following Christ. But they don't mention anything less than these things. So these things are important. And what you'll see with these five things is that they're involved not only in the beginning of the journey of following after Christ, but all along the journey. Things that, these aren't just one and done activities, these are things we grow in as disciples of Christ throughout our Christian lives. So whether you find yourself in a place where this whole idea of following Christ is new to you, or you've been doing this for many years, this passage is for you, for you to hear. So let's get into it. First, following Christ involves crisis. I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. Let me read again verses 4 and 5. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Now, why is this a crisis? Well, Jesus had stepped into Peter's boat, asked to use it while he spoke to the crowd. And he tells him, a professional fisherman, to let down his nets for a catch. Now imagine for a moment what might be going on in the mind of Simon. Simon Peter, as he's hearing these words, and he's saying to him, Master, we've toiled all night. Perhaps he was thinking things like, don't you realize we're, we're actually done fishing? We've already done this. We caught nothing. We're cleaning our nets. Or perhaps he was thinking, I am a fisherman. This is what I do for a living. I should know uh, when to put out my nets. I think I know what I'm doing. But I think in a real way, this is a crisis moment for Simon Peter in terms of his faith. Between what he had just seen and experienced and felt and what Jesus was telling him to do. 
They sort of seemed at odds with one another. There's some tension there. But his response is profound. He says, but at your word, I will let down the nets. We have similar moments of crisis in following after Christ. Again, not just at the beginning, but on through the journey. These moments in our hearts and minds often reveal that there's a great distance in our hearts between the first half of verse 5 and the second half. What our experience is, what we see, and what he's telling us to do. There's often great tension there. And how often do we use our experience as an excuse not to take him at his word? And do what he's clearly called us to do. Maybe we say to ourselves, you know, I've tried that before. It doesn't work. I've prayed for this. Prayer doesn't work. At least on some level. It doesn't appear to work. And I've even heard this on a corporate level in a church setting where, um, you know, a church has tried different things to, to reach out to the community and they say, it, that stuff doesn't work here, you know. We've done that. We've tried that and done it. It doesn't work. Now, I'm not talking about just superficial things, but uh, you know, our calling to prayer, discipleship, evangelism, uh, all of these types of things that God has clearly called us to do. We can almost have the attitude of, you know, we've tried that. It doesn't really work around here. Uh, we'll have to think of some other uh, trick uh, to, to do ministry. And think about what that kind of reasoning assumes. The reasoning of, you know, I tried that, it didn't work. What are we assuming to be true about the reality of things? Well, first thing, it assumes that my experience defines what is true and possible for ministry. Secondly, it assumes that I can only expect what I can accomplish or I can accomplish with the help of maybe some other people. These assumptions are thoroughly unbiblical. Let me just mention a few fragments of verses scattered throughout Scripture. Lean not on your own understanding. He who trusts in his own mind is a fool. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Those are just to mention a few. There's many more that could be mentioned. But what God calls us to in following after him, following after Christ, is beyond us. We need to be okay with that. What he's calling us to do, think about it, make disciples of all nations, see people move from death to life, to be spiritually resurrected, to produce the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. None of us can do that. I don't, know how, I don't care how, how experienced you are, how educated you are. Only God can do those things. So that comes to another question to ask ourselves. Do we really believe that nothing is impossible with God? Or to put it on the positive side, as Scripture also does, do we believe that all things are possible with him? Or do you just say, Lord, I've, I've toiled all night. And caught nothing. End of story. 
An essential aspect of following Jesus is this. When you face a moment of crisis in your faith, you develop the heart reflex of, but at your word. When you face that moment of not seeing it, but develop the heart reflex of, but at your word, I will obey. I will trust. Because it's you who are saying it. Now this assumes something else, that you're hearing his voice, that you're listening to his word. That's why we need to be in the scriptures daily. Not just certain favorite portions of the scriptures, but the whole counsel of God. We need to be reading through it so we know and we're accustomed to his voice and what his word is, is saying to us. So I would encourage you, if you're not already on some sort of reading plan, and there's hundreds of reading plans that you could you know, find one that works for you, but just be in the Word every day systematically through the whole counsel of God that will only encourage you and help you in following Jesus. What crisis of faith are you facing right now in your life that you need to respond with, but at your Word, Jesus, at your Word, I will obey. Now, a second thing involved in following Christ is conviction. We kind of see this from verses 6 through the beginning of verse 10. Simon obeys. He and his buddies throw their nets in and they catch fish. Not just any old catch of fish, but an abundance. So great that their nets are breaking. Their boats are sinking. This is obviously a supernatural miracle of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Being confronted with who Christ is as God demonstrated in this miracle, the Holy One naturally leads to the conviction of sin. And we see that in verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. This isn't unlike any other encounters with God in Scripture. There's many cases of this, but think Isaiah 6. Remember when Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord? He says, Woe is me, for I am lost, a man of unclean lips, dwelling among a people of unclean lips. You cannot truly follow Christ without being confronted with who he is as God. Not just a good example, not just me on my best day, but God in the flesh, the Holy One, the Omnipotent One. You know, as I thought about this, I was reminded of another passage. Do you remember when uh, Jesus is talking to Philip in John 14, and Philip had just said, yeah, Jesus, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus says, have you been with me so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Then he goes on to say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That question 
It's a haunting question to ask yourself with regard to who Christ is as you seek to follow him. Have you been with him so long that you don't really know him? Maybe you've lost focus. Maybe he's faded into the background of your life and you've forgotten who he is. As God, the Holy One. Seeing Christ as the Holy One confronts us with who we are in all our sin. Have you ever felt like Simon Peter in this verse, verse 8? Maybe you think to yourself, you know, God would, is never going to forgive me for that in my past, whatever that is. Maybe you think to yourself, you know, I've been a believer for years and I feel like a complete failure as a believer because I still struggle with seemingly the same sins over and over. Maybe you think, He'll never be able to use me because of my sin, because I'm not a good enough Christian. Maybe you feel like that now, where you're tempted to say, go away from me, Lord. You don't want to deal with this. uh, I'm too much of a mess. You know, the, the enemy will tempt you to believe that this is exactly what Jesus will do with you. He will leave you. That you've blown it too many times. You've sinned yourself out of my hands, beyond my grace, and beyond my ability to work. The enemy will tempt you that way. Maybe you felt that. But here's the question. How does Jesus actually respond to Simon Peter? That leads us to our next point. Following Christ not only involves conviction, but comfort. Look at the last half of verse 10. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. See, Jesus neither departs from Simon, as he thought he might or he should, nor does he rebuke him for being a sinful man, though he certainly was a sinful man just like you and I are this morning. Does that surprise you, that response of Jesus? Do you marvel at that? This isn't the only place where you find this type of response of Christ and even the Father. Throughout Scripture, there's many glorious moments of like, like this, this unexpected gentleness, tenderness, with sinners who recognize their own sin. I can't think of any more comforting words from a holy God to sinners like you and me than do not be afraid. Do you believe Jesus is saying those words to you? Do you even believe that he doesn't want you to be afraid? My hunch is, Most of us live with this plaguing notion that God is always fed up with you. That he's always frustrated and he really is ready to cast you off at any moment. He'd really rather not for you to be around. Though we wouldn't say that out loud. That doesn't doesn't sound like good theology, does it? 
But we feel that. As if Jesus actually wants us to be afraid and to be very afraid because we're such poor sinners. That's why we need to renew our minds with the Scripture daily. Getting used to the dialogue in our minds and our hearts that, Lord, I feel like this. I feel like a terrible sinner. But you say this. I feel like this. I'm thinking this way, but you say this. That's part of following Christ is learning to take thoughts captive and make them obedient to the word of Christ. Take him at his word, not just any, not just certain words, but even his words of comfort. Take him at his words of comfort to you. Sometimes that's the hardest thing to do because we can't forgive ourselves. We can't, you know, I wouldn't forgive somebody like me. But are you taking him at his words, even words of comfort? Don't feel guilty about doing that. He said it. Following Christ involves being comforted in the midst of our sin with, in essence, in summary, the gospel, the good news of Christ's person and work. You know, in another place, in Matthew's gospel, in the Beatitudes, we read, uh, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You know, I think in context there, the mourning is really for our sin and the sin in the world. That's what we should mourn for. And there's a great promise to that. You'll be comforted. You will be comforted, ultimately, in the gospel. Following, Learning to follow Christ is learning to live, what I call, I'm borrowing this from John Piper, but he uses the phrase, uh, learning to live with a sense of desperation and deliverance. And that's for, If you think about applying the gospel to yourself, it involves both sides, right? It's very humbling. It's very convicting. Shows us our need for a Savior. Yet we do have a Savior. And He comforts us. And He forgives us for those sins. He's a sufficient Savior. So we need both the conviction and comfort of the Gospel if we are to follow Christ. That brings us to the fourth aspect that I want to highlight this morning. Not only does Jesus surprise Simon with his comforting words of do not fear in the midst of his sin. He goes beyond what Simon or anyone else there, I'm sure, would even imagine. He commissions him. Jesus not only comforts Simon in the midst of his sin, he actually enlists him in his service. Far from casting him off and departing from him, he's actually saying, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. This brings us back to the context of the passage, this miracle catch of great, you know, this great catch of fish. This was an object lesson about gospel ministry. Obviously, it revealed also Christ as God, that he is all-powerful to be able to accomplish something like that. But it's important to remember that the miracles of Jesus recorded in Scripture are not just random displays 
of power. Like he's just randomly going around doing tricks like a magician would do for the crowds. These weren't random displays of power, but rather living sermons about the nature and purpose of his saving work. It was all pointing towards his death and resurrection and establishing the kingdom of God. That's what these miracles were a part of. They weren't just to wow the people. They were pointing to something. In another place, we read of the parable of the net or the drag net in Matthew 13. If you remember that, it was a short little parable about the kingdom of God being like a net which gathers fish of every kind. They're eventually sorted at the end. But it's gathering fish. Ultimately, through the gospel, through the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom, that's how this catch of fish is is gathered. And this is something that Simon and the other disciples would soon be involved in themselves. And we see that on the pages of the book of Acts later. But we too have been commissioned to catch men, to make disciples of all nations. And here's the thing to remember about that. There is a guaranteed catch of fish. An abundant catch of fish. How do I know that? Because through the blood of Christ, he purchased people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And they will be brought into the kingdom. In other words, this miracle of the great catch of fish in our text this morning is also an object lesson for us. It's a picture of our catching men as followers of Christ. Do you believe it will be successful? You think this is a failed, this is a you know, project doomed to failure? Or do you think there's success to be expected? Not because of us, but because of him. Or will you say, you know, I've been fishing all night. I haven't caught anything. Forget it. I'm not going to invest in that. It's a challenge. It's a challenge for us in our faith as we seek to follow Christ. Where are we? Where are you this morning with that? And then it brings us to our last point. The fifth aspect of following Christ that I want to highlight is commitment. Verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This encounter with Jesus literally changes their entire lives. In other words, Jesus is more than background music. He's more than the margins. He's front and center. And it has impact on how they live, the direction of their life, where they're going, what they're investing in, what they're hoping in. You know, sometimes we can think that God's call on our lives to make disciples of all nations and be involved in kingdom work and the commitment involved, we can almost think about it as if it just comes out of the blue without any context. As if God just wants you, you sacrifice everything, follow me. As if you were his slave, not his child. 
as if he was just a taker. He just wants to take your life away from you, make it miserable. But think about the context of even in this one passage, and there's many others that speak to this, but what are other things that are going on here that are a part of this commitment? And we talked about crisis, the conviction, the comfort of the gospel, the gracious, loving commission. All of this comes before they actually commit. You see, we commit because we experience the gospel of our loving Savior, our loving, comforting Savior. And we we love him and obey him because he first loved us. There's a context. There's a reason why you would want to commit yourself to the Lord and following after him. Another short little parable in Matthew 13 about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus taught that it was like a treasure hidden in a field. Man hides it and covers it up and then in his joy, He goes and sells all he has to buy the field. Jesus doesn't tell you to leave everything so that you'll have nothing. Rather, you want to, with great joy, to leave everything in terms of priority because you've found a greater treasure, a greater treasure, by the way, which is his good pleasure to give to you. It's his good pleasure to give his disciples the kingdom. Have you found that treasure? Do you treat it like a treasure in your life? Not at one point in the past, but today. Do you treat it like a treasure? Don't leave Jesus in the margins of your life as if he's there to follow you around with what you want to do with your life. Follow him. There is no greater calling in this life and there is no greater treasure to be found. How do you need to do that today? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. It shows us so much about who you are, Lord Jesus that you are mighty God, the Holy One, yet one who is gentle and gracious towards sinners who recognize their sin and need for a Savior. Lord, however you chose to speak through this text this morning uh, to each one of us in our different situations, Lord, would you give us a heart that would say, but at your word, I will follow. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.